Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, our text this morning begins in verse 35 and extends to verse 45. We're continuing to look at this theme that we've called reset, becoming the church culture that Jesus wants us to be. And part of what we're trying to do, as I've mentioned, is I think we have a historic and wonderful opportunity to think a little bit and reset how we are as a larger culture. What are the, written in the first word on worship, what are the values that we cling to the most? What's the narrative that we have for our sense of mission? How do we treat one another? What are the the means by which we uh, deal with our disagreements? And at the end of it all, what what is it all for? Uh, And that's where we'll end, which is joy. And so we've been looking at the, the different building blocks or aspects of thinking about our church's culture, uh, which then flows into a, a build, building out a mature community that shapes mature disciples, right? So what we have in our worship booklet is the, the statement that the session approved last August uh, that describes what mature disciples look like and what a mature community looks like. Well, how do we get there? What, how do we accomplish that in you? It's the larger church culture that, that ultimately produces a community that shapes disciples and conversely disciples that f- are part of a community that shape the culture. And so what's this culture that we believe that Jesus wants us to have from Holy Scripture? Well, we began with the idea that Jesus is the only true hero. Uh, Jesus is Lord and pastors are not. Pastors and other leaders are servants, your servants for Jesus' sake. Well, if Jesus is the hero, then what is Jesus up to? That's what we talked about last time. God's mission certainly does, in fact, extend to souls. We desire the salvation of souls, but, but redemption is a bigger category than that. It extends to everything. I mean, Jesus desires every square inch of your life and ultimately every square inch of his world. Well, how do we go about that then? What, what's the desired virtue Uh, that Jesus wants us to have in accomplishing his mission. Well, that's what today is about. Humility, not power, is our desired virtue. Uh, I have to confess, I struggle with my title, but because strictly speaking, the opposite of humility is pride, not power. But I think the title is warranted, the theme is warranted by our text this morning, in which Jesus will, will make it quite clear Uh, That humble service, service motivated by humility is what he calls his disciples to, not the exercise of power as the Gentiles do. But in order to see that, we, we need not just our natural eyes and ears and minds, but we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we really do believe what we just said. We, we can certainly understand how the words and the grammar and even the larger theology of our passage this morning works without your help. But, but the true knowledge that we seek is not just that of, that flits about in the head, but actually that which takes root in our hearts, that actually changes us and changes this congregation of which we are a part. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and open our eyes of faith that we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. May we see and savor you so that we might become like what we behold and so reflect the very image of God. Grant us this, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Mark chapter 10 then, beginning in verse 35. And James and John 
the sons of Zebedee came to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I have been a generally unsuccessful reader of Robert Caro's books. Uh, I, I got about 40% of the way through his Pulitzer Prize winning biography called The Power Broker, which tells the story of Robert Moses, who, who did more than anyone to reshape New York City and its five boroughs. And I got about the same distance through the first volume of his magisterial multi-volume biography of LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson. However, I, I did finish one Robert Caro book, Uh, his autobiographical memoir, which he called Working. Uh, It's a fascinating book. I would commend it to you. And here's the plus. It's actually only 200 pages, so you can make it through. Relatively brief, but it was fascinating because it gave you a window into the way that Caro did his work of writing these amazing, long biographies. Um, How did he go about his work? And how did he select his topics? And how did he actually go about outlining? And how did he go about writing? Talks about all of that. Really fascinating. It also gives you a window into why he chooses to write about really, truth be told, not very attractive individuals. Not, neither Robert Moses nor LBJ were such. And, and to that end, he has this gem right at the end of the book where he gives you a, a, a window into why he spent, has spent his entire life, over 50 years, writing these kinds of books. He says, really... My books are an examination of what power does to people. Power doesn't always corrupt. And you can see it in the case of, for example, Al Smith or Sam Rayburn. There, power cleanses. But what power always does is reveal. Because when you're climbing, you have to conceal from people what it is you're really willing to do. Uh, what it is you want to do. But, but once you get power where you wanted to be all along, then you can see what the protagonist wanted to do all along because now he's doing it. Now, 
As someone who's written a biography, that's a stunning observation um, on, on multiple levels, but, but particularly about what power does. What power always does is reveal. It, it reveals what we wanted to do all along. It, it reveals what's actually in our hearts. I think that's really important for us, that observation, as we come to this passage, but also as we think a little bit uh, about our church's culture. Right, certainly, Matthew, excuse me, Mark chapter 10 connects directly to Kara's observation uh, about power and what it reveals, because, because Jesus here talks about the way unbelievers use power. Uh, as one commentator observed about this passage, greatness in Jesus's day, was defined as power, coercive power. The more power one had, the greater one was. And Jesus here tells us that Christians were not to aspire to the virtues of, of coercive power, but were to follow Jesus in the way of humble service. And so we see how Cairo connects to this passage, but listen, if if we're going to name reality this morning, Caro's observation, I think, speaks to our church's culture as well. Because, truth be told, there's, there's been way too much focus at IPC over who has power and who doesn't. Or whether the session has a balance of power between the teaching elders and the ruling elders, or, or whether the session and the diaconate are, are sharing power appropriately, or, or whether my constituency is being represented on the session and the decisions being made, uh, because if I'm not, then I'm being at the risk of being disempowered. Friends, this isn't who we want to be. This isn't who Jesus wants us to be. Rather, what he calls us to is, is humility. And as the session's document on mature disciples and communities at IPC sets forth, uh, humility is typified by having the mindset of God by considering others more significant than ourselves and by, quote, consistently wrestling with the poison of pride and its relational and institutional consequences. But we have to confess this morning with the disciples that, that embracing the way of humility it's actually far from what we imagine. It's far from what we imagine for ourselves. Yeah, it seems clear that from the Gospels that the disciples imagined that Jesus' kingdom coming meant advantages for them. It meant power. After all, just a few short verses before what we read in verses 29 through 31, Jesus told the disciples, truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house or brother or sister or mother or father, children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers, children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. And so with their imaginations fired by the expectation of reward, the possibility of reward, James and John approached Jesus with their heart's desire. Did you see that, the way they did that? Look at verse 35 again. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, 
one at your right hand, one at your left, in your glory. Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask. We, we have our heart's desire. This is what we want. Well, what do you want? We want positions. They, they wanted to be appointed to the seats or to the thrones in Jesus' coming kingdom, those thrones that were closest to Jesus, that had the greatest proximity to the king himself. Perhaps what James and John imagined was, was that they might find, form a kind of triumvirate with Jesus. Jesus and James and John, the three of them, making the decisions, the key decisions, that would affect the, the future of Jesus' glorious rule and reign. And they would make the decisions together, and no one else would be in the room where it happened. Of course, you, you recognize that phrase, right? No one else in the room where it happens. It's one of the, the best parts of the second act of Lin-Manuel Miranda's show, Hamilton. You might remember it if you saw it. Uh, Hamilton is talking to Aaron Burr, and he's, he's bragging about the fact that, that he and the two Virginians, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, have, have really solved everything. They went into a room and apportioned out certain things with the result that that not only did Hamilton actually have his own interests advanced, he actually had accrued a great deal of power. And the greatest thing of all, Hamilton said, no one else was in the room where it happened. And then as toward the end of that scene, Hamilton asked Aaron Burr, what is it that you want? What is it that you desire above all else? And what does he say? I want to be in the room where it happens. I got to be in the room. Why, why does that make sense to us? Why did it make sense to the disciples? It was because in the disciples' mind, and in our minds, to be in the room, to have, to have positions equals power. To be in the room where it happens is to have real power. That's clearly what James and John thought, but it's also what the other disciples thought too, isn't it? They, they, they see James and John angling for, for positions of coercive power. And what's their response? Did you catch it? They were indignant. Look at verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Why were they indignant? Well, Jesus tells us. They all wanted coercive power. In their minds, the highest virtue, the nature of true greatness, is found in exercising power. But listen, we're not all that different from the disciples. We think the same thing, too. I once had a man in our church tell me that, that he was well qualified to be a ruling elder because he was good at making decisions. He said, all day long in my business, and I have a, a large interest, and many people depend on me. I make a decision here, I make a decision here. I'm really good at it, and using power, and making those decisions. That's what I can contribute if I were to be a ruling elder. But friends, that's what the Gentiles do. Not Jesus' disciples seek positions, and think that means power. Likewise, the Gentiles think in terms of, of cultivating those who have power. 
I had another man at our church tell me that I was failing in my ministry because I didn't work to cultivate the most prominent and financially beneficial members of our congregation, giving them special service and attention, presumably with the eye of of securing their backing and support. But friends, that's what the Gentiles do. That's not what Jesus' disciples do. Not to be sure, these 12 disciples who, who would later be called apostles and would later become key building blocks of Jesus' church, they, they would receive authority and power just as we have. But, but what is it that we have received? What is the authority and power that we have received? What is it to do? To do what? I want to suggest that we've received authority and power to do two things, and the first is to suffer. Right? That's what Jesus says here, isn't it? After James and John asked for these positions of of power to be in the room where it happens, what does Jesus say? Do you see it? Verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? They said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. With the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. It's for those for whom it has been prepared. You know the next time in Mark's gospel that language of right hand and left shows up? The crucifixion scene. Jesus was crucified between two thieves, one on his right hand, the other on his left. But of course, the cup of suffering, the baptism of death, James and John would in fact know that. James would be beheaded Because of his his witness for Christ in AD 44, John would be exiled to the Isle of Patmos in his late 80s. Of all of the apostles, only John dies a natural death. The rest are martyred. I mean, it's it's, it's clearly the case that what Jesus has given these these apostles authority and power to do is to suffer. But it's not just the apostles, my friends. All those who follow Jesus will know this suffering. It was the message of the apostles themselves in the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas said that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Well, we imagine that following Jesus into his service would entail leadership and decision-making, followings, platforms, universal love and respect, power. But what it really entails is suffering. Suffering from others for Jesus' sake. Um, Sometimes that suffering from others occurs from outsiders, those who are unbelievers, who persecute us for the gospel. But if you read the New Testament, what you'll find is the persecution and suffering from others largely comes from those inside the people of God who, who misunderstand the gospel or misappropriate it or have to be withstood. And that suffering comes, suffering from others for Jesus' sake. But this suffering also entails suffering with others for Jesus' sake. The word sympathy, the etymology of that word sympathy, has the idea of suffering with. Sim is a prefix that has to do with with. Pathy, pathos, suffering, suffering with. So that when we sympathize with one another, we actually suffer with others. We bear one another's burdens, and we carry one another's sorrows. We weep with others as they weep. We mourn and grieve when they grieve. We suffer with others. But the suffering finally entails suffering for others for Jesus' sake. 
Central to the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer's ethics was this idea of vicarious representative action. And and what he meant by that idea was that sometimes we must make difficult decisions that will bring profound suffering upon ourselves so that others won't have to suffer. We literally take upon ourselves the suffering vicariously, representatively, so that others can, can go free. We suffer for others as course, James and John did. Of course, Jesus did as well. But this is what we have authority to do, power to do. We have authority and power to suffer from and with and for others. Now, that isn't very sexy. If we were to have a, an announcement in the bulletin and I could do the announcements and say, hey, we need you to come and suffer from, with, and, other, and for others, uh, we need some volunteers, I doubt any of you would just raise up your hand or shoot us an email. Say, I'm signing up for that. But that's what Jesus calls us to. He, he calls us as his disciples to follow him in the way of the cross. He's given us authority and power to suffer, but also to serve. Again, that's that's what Jesus says in verse 43. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now, you've heard these verses before. We use them to talk about servant leadership, like that's a thing. Even though few of us really know what that phrase means. But really, when it has to do something with humility. But when we talk about humility, we, we think it means some kind of self-abnegation, thinking ourselves as a worm and God has every right to crush us. And when somebody asks us how our day is going, and we will say, well, much better than I deserve, as though that's somehow humble. That's not what Jesus is getting at. He's talking about taking what you have and giving it away giving it away to serve another, not grasping at your power, but opening your hands, not clinging, but distributing. That's at the heart of humility. As the author John Dixon puts it, humility is the noble choice to forego your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. More simply, you could say the humble person is marked by a willingness to hold power in the service of others. What is that? Well, it's taking whatever you have, whatever power, whatever position, whatever time, talent, treasure, and saying and acting on this basis, this isn't mine. It's yours. Please use this. Use me so that you might be first so that you might advance, so that you might succeed. That's what, that's what service looks like. That's what humility looks like. It's, it's giving ourselves away for the benefit of another. So what does that look like here at IPC? Well, it, it looks like being absolutely committed to the idea that how we do things is just as important as what we do. It does little good to build a large church if you're simply going to destroy lives along the way. I'll mention this in a couple of weeks, but you can go through a list over the last 20 years of 
teaching elders who've served on staff here and ruling elders who've served on staff here or served on the session here. It's a long list of people who've come and gone in part because we've not always been committed to this idea that how we do things is just as important as what we do. And that looks like involving people in decisions that affect them directly, whether it means keeping them in a loop with an email or whether it means meeting with them separately before we make a proposal. We're we're willing to give our power away to involve others in the process. It it looks like not insisting on being the center of attention, demanding, opinionated, having to have my way, but instead saying, I don't have to fill the room. I don't need to intervene. Others are already caring. I can let them care. I don't have to have the final say. I am, in fact, wrong in this instance and frequently. This kind of humility looks like not manipulating others, drawing information out of them to use against them or pulling them into our inner circle where loyalty is the currency for influence. It looks like taking our greatest pleasure in using whatever influence or power we may have to let others take the lead, to let others develop, to let others take the credit. Ronald Reagan, on his desk when he was president in the White House, he had a little plaque on his desk that said, it's amazing how much you can get done when you don't care who gets the credit. But that, at the end, is a heart of humility. I don't care who gets the credit just as long as we move together. That's what humble service looks like. Now, for us to be a culture where where humility is our most desired virtue, y'all, that won't be easy. Just read the New Testament. This kind of living is hard because this kind of living leads to our own dying. The dying of what we imagine our lives together might be. And it's only possible because of who we follow. We follow Jesus, the the only true hero, our Lord, who's both our example of humility and and the power for humility. How's that the case? What's what Jesus says at the end of the passage, isn't it? Jesus says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus tells us he's our example. He didn't come to be served. Though as as the God of the universe, as the one who is the Son of Man, who's received authority from the Father, the Ancient of Days, Daniel chapter 7, to rule over his world as the Son of Man, he had every right to demand that everyone serve him from, from the first moment he arrived. But he doesn't do that, does he? Rather, Jesus came among us as one who serves, as one who gave his power away, who did not grasp glory, in fact, he, he took upon himself the form of a, of a servant and became obedient to death on the cross. Why? What's well, for you, for me? He gave his life as a ransom for many. That, that's the whole point of his mission. He wasn't going to Jerusalem because he had a death wish, and he wasn't going to Jerusalem to be established as king. Rather, he was on the way to Jerusalem in this moment in Mark's gospel to be delivered over by God himself so that sinners might be brought home to God. And in doing this, Jesus was the world's greatest example of one who let his status go, 
who gave his power away, who deployed his resources and influences for your good and for mine. But that means that Jesus is more than an example, more than an example of of the kind of humility he, he longs for us to have. He's actually our power for doing so. Because his mind, his spirit, it actually dwells in us. Philippians 2, if you were to look at it this afternoon, verse 5 tells you that we already have his mind in us. This mind that leads us to humility. His spirit dwells in us. The mind of Christ, our Savior, is in us. Which means there's a new power. Not a position that leads to the use of coercive power, but but a power, a place of suffering and service that allows others to thrive. This is the power of humility. It's the virtue that we desire that will cause Jesus' gospel to go forth in ways far beyond what we can imagine or possibly dream. It was the case, a story that Kent Hughes tells of a man named Samuel Logan Bringle. You probably don't know that name. He was the first American to join with the then British Salvation Army. The Salvation Army was created by a man named William Booth. Bringle was a Methodist pastor who was on the way to becoming a bishop in the Methodist church, but he felt led by God to give all that up and to join the Salvation Army. So he goes from America to England to do so. William Booth, when Bringle arrives, he's, he wasn't he wasn't excited that Bringle was joined. In fact, he was, he was actually quite skeptical as he told the Methodist pastor, you've been your own boss too long. You've had too much power. You've made too many decisions. So what did he do? William Booth, in order to instill humility in Bringle, William Booth had the, the pastor clean the boots of the other trainees, wash them, and then get some stuff that looks like black shoe polish, blacking, and black the boots. Every day, that was his task. Bringle began to wonder to himself if he had made a big mistake. He said, have I followed my own fancy across the Atlantic simply in order to black boots, to wash shoes? And as he was meditating on that, he he saw before his eyes a, a kind of vision of John 13, of Jesus taking off his external robes, these robes of glory, taking a a servant's towel and wrapping it around his waist and going and washing the feet of ignorant, unlettered, stubborn fishermen. And Bringle said in a prayer, Lord, you wash their feet. I'll black their boots. From there, Bringle would actually go on to bring the Salvation Army from England to America with countless thousands saved, with millions who've been touched by the work and ministry of the Salvation Army, all because he embraced humility as his desired virtue, all because of whom he followed. I wonder what God would do with you. You as an individual, with us as a congregation, as IPC, if we did the same, if we were a church culture that embraced humility, not power as our desired virtue, what what would it look like for, for our congregation, for our city, if we were to follow Jesus in this way, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life away for others? What would happen 
How would things change? Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do ask that you would do this work in us. This is hard work. It's, it really is a dying, walking in the way of the cross and giving up the life we imagine for the life that we receive from your hand. And so, Lord, please, may the mind of Christ our Savior live in us from day to day. Lord, may your love transform us, all that we do or say, so that we might give ourselves away, all of our power, position, privilege, whatever we have, our time, talent, treasure, whatever it is, to benefit others. And so live out your call upon our lives as individuals and as a congregation. Grant us this, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.